Hello, and welcome to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Our podcast series is designed to educate, challenge, and inspire listeners while keeping you updated on developments regarding modern trust law and powerful planning opportunities available, all in an effort to deliver direction and control to clients and their advisors. Well, hello, this is David Warren, uh, chairman of Bridgeford Trust Company and co-founder with another uh, installment of our podcast series. Uh, We're very excited about the direction the podcast has gone over these last couple of years and and really encouraged by how many people follow it and listen to it and and really have been amazed by the talent uh, and prolific people we've been able to interview um, over the time since we began. And and today I am particularly excited about our guest. Um, I met... Judge Patrick Riley uh, a couple of years ago now in uh, in Naples, Florida, where we discussed a, a mutual engagement on a particular family we were both uh, ultimately keen to serve. Uh, and I, I met in Judge Riley, really a, 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 an amazing sort of version of, of my similar, his background is very similar to my own. So it's in many respects, uh, we connected pretty quickly. He began his career as a young lawyer in the DA's office. Uh, but even before that, he also went to the, lame, the same law school that I did, Suffolk University Law School. He was there a couple of years before me uh, and, like me, went on from law school to become a prosecutor. Um, and then, and that's in the Boston area and had a great four-year uh, career there, which I'd love for, for Judge Riley to talk about. Um, but went on there to start his own law firm um, in the Boston area and became a real prolific litigator. And uh, he'll talk a little bit about some of the big cases that he handled um, and uh, he did that for, for several years, also kind of transitioned into the trust and estates world, where I believe he began st- uh, working as a trustee, which is what we're going to talk a lot about. Um, the, the amazing thing about Judge Riley is that so much of his background and career has perfectly trained him to serve as an independent trustee and in, in a fiduciary role, which, again, is how we connected. And, and I like to tell Judge Riley, uh, when, when a beneficiary asks him for a distribution, he says, I'll be the judge of that. And in fact, he actually will be the judge of that because he used to be a judge. But uh, I was, I was, I've, been, I've been waiting to make that joke for weeks, Judge Riley. <laughs> um, but that's, that's about as clever as I'm going to get today. Um, but no, I, I just very briefly moved on in 2002, was appointed a trial court judge in Massachusetts. They, they called the Superior Court and had a very prolific career there for over eight years um, and then retired and did some really interesting trustee work um, uh, for State Street, which Judge Riley will explain and describe uh, in Ireland, which is, uh, as I know, as part of that tenure is sort of winding up. But that's a brief history of Judge Riley's extremely prolific career, again, all of which is what coalesces to, to make him a, a tremendously impartial um, fiduciary and, and co-trustee in certain circumstances. So, Judge Riley, thank you for taking the time to meet with me. I've thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you over the, over the last couple of years in our conversation. So, Tell me, why don't you? Let me go back to the beginning of your career when you went in, when you went to the DA's office. Did you ever think you'd come to a different point in your career to serve as a trustee? So why don't we begin there? You know, honestly, uh, I think back when I was uh, joining the uh, DA's office, I never even uh, thought about trustee work, or um, I was so focused then on trying to gain some trial experience and and. Uh, you know, prosecute uh, crimes and uh, put people uh, that did horrible things away and public safety and so forth was such a focus then that I never I never looked down the road 30 years later that I would be doing a di- an entirely different type of work. Sure. Um, but uh, going back to your joke when you said about uh, I'd be the judge of that, it reminded me of when I first took the bench uh, in 2002, I had three young kids and um, whenever uh, they disagreed with me, they would say, dad, you're so judgmental. (laughs) (laughs) No pun intended, uh, I'm sure. And and I, and I, I used to go, hello. (laughs) (laughs) You're paid to do. (laughs) Right. Right. You know, I, 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 I think I grew up with um, an upbringing of, um, of public service and, and service to people. And, um, uh, my family were very people oriented and still are. And, um, and I think that's what drew me to the law. Uh, although in my family, you were either a lawyer or a priest or a cop, uh, you know, <laughs> so, um, 
you uh, the uh, a lot of uh, the family members went into the law or law enforcement and mm-hmm. um, not many went into the priesthood my uncle is the only one that I know <laughs> but um, but we were all candidates at one time or another I can assure you of that you know yeah I'm sure but, when I should but, have said happy St. Patrick's Day a couple of days later well thank you I, thank I you I, yeah. I came back from uh, Dublin on St. Patrick's Day oh. and um, that must have been uh, amazing to be there. Yeah, I was over there last week and um, just actually wrapped up my Irish career on the um, in the uh, in the financial district uh, in Dublin has become quite a financial hub, as you know, with yeah. Brexit and distributions throughout EMA and and the Irish tax. Uh, is favorable to corporates, uh, so they um, they like to uh, domicile there. Well, I'm interested to hear you have you explain that uh, to our listeners for sure. What, you, what you've been doing somewhat recently for them or, or over the last sure. several years. But I wanted, to, if you don't mind, I'd like to take you back to your litigation career because sure. it's, it, you, you had a tremendously successful career, and I think you saw some courtroom time and, and handled some large cases that, frankly, most lawyers don't. So, yeah. if you don't mind explaining, I think it was in 1982 you started your own civil and criminal litigation firm. So, right. first of all, talk to me about starting that from scratch, and then how did you end up handling? Well, and I, and I know. Our listeners would love to hear about some of your large cases that you handled, but that, that's a big jump, jumping out of the DA's office into, into private practice. So talk to me about that transition. Well, um, the one thing uh, being in uh, public service, like in, as an assistant district attorney, is you get the opportunity to try a lot of cases. Um, in the private sector, uh, as you well know, David, you, uh, lawyers, even even the uh, busiest of trial lawyers, they don't have uh, that many trials a year because, number one, there's a lot of uh, backlog in the system that doesn't allow for one lawyer to, um, you know, have his own session. So, um, but in the criminal side, you um, you have the Constitution mandating speedy trials for people who are being held uh, um, waiting bail, can't raise bail and so forth. So there's a lot of opportunity there and as a prosecutor to get a lot of trial experience, which I was uh, blessed to be able to obtain. And as a result, civil firms who needed trial lawyers, um, that was an easy uh, entree, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. to the civil side. And, and being, uh, I joined a, a large plaintiff's firm and the plaintiff's uh, work is very much like the DA's work. You take a set of circumstances and facts, you put the case together, you present it to the jury and the court and, um, and you're trying to, um, uh, you have the burden of proof, you know, so you're trying to convince the jury that mm-hmm. uh, your case is worthy of their consideration. And um, so Going from the criminal side to the civil side, um, it wasn't that uh, difficult to transition as far as having the burden of proof. Uh, the standard of care on, on a burden of proof is quite different in the civil. It's it's be mm-hmm. it's a preponderance of the evidence, or more likely than not. In the criminal side, as you know, it's without um, beyond a reasonable doubt. So, mm-hmm. um, so there is a big difference there. However, the um, the approach to things, um, and as I said, people, um, uh, as a DA, you, you were dealing with uh, victims of crime. Um, so you had to have some uh, a, approach to empathy and uh, understanding of what these folks had been through or were going through. Um, and the same thing was true in the plaintiffs where you had injured parties who were having their lives disrupted by one uh, source or another, whether it be a products liability case or a, or an air crash case or whatever. Um, when I left the DA's office in uh, 82, I joined a, a plaintiff firm, as I mentioned, and uh, the first um, uh, matter I had was, um, the first large case I had was the Palm 90 flight from Air Florida that went down in the Potomac. Uh, in Washington, and um, there were survivors, but there were also a number of people who were uh, killed. And uh, I had um, the estate of one of those young men who used to work for the Smithsonian Institute. Mm. Um, 
And that I kind of cut my teeth on on that air crash case and and then had a Delta and one in Alaska and California. And um, so I I started to learn a bit about aviation and and mm-hmm. and, and uh, air crash cases only to then be handed a train case and <laughs> had to learn about the, the railways and the rules of uh, the road for railways. And, well, that really wasn't even in the United States, as I recall, right? Wasn't that outside the country? Um, uh, the, no, no. I had railway cases for Amtrak and so forth. Um, oh, okay. And, I, I, I was uh, and then the years, years later, I had a, a funicular train case in Austria. Right. Um, but uh, the, I was essentially what would happen is the subject matter of the litigation changed, but the rules of evidence and the, mm-hmm. and the burden of proof remained constant. So um, you, you had to uh, adjust, if you will, to either if it was a products case to the engineering and the, and the physics of, uh, of that, um, whether it be uh, uh, a stove tip over case uh, or um, a, a firearm uh, that uh, was alleged to have uh, misfired and things of that nature. So um, I had some products liability cases or rollovers, like um, truck rollovers, like the, mm-hmm. um, the Ford rollover and the, um, and, you know, the, I so, had so you a, were involved with the Ford Bronco. I remember the Ford Bronco. Is that what you're yeah, talking about? I yeah, remember that Bronco, very well. I was in high school when that was huge. That was a big, that happened in South Jersey. Yeah. Lots of people got hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm much older than you, David. So. <laughs> Not much older. <laughs> I was, a, I was a young, I was eight when I was trying <laughs> cases. <laughs> you were the Doogie, you were the Doogie Howsey of, of the yeah, world. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, I, I didn't realize you were involved with the Bronco cases. I was pretty proud. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, I had I had been doing plaintiff's work for oh fifteen years or so, and um, mm-hmm. and I had um, a couple of uh, truck cases, um, and I was contacted by an insurer for a shock absorber company, uh, and they asked me if I would consider doing some defense work. And, um, and the first thing any plaintiff's lawyer would think is, Oh, am I going to have a conflict? Uh, so, Mm -hmm. um, uh, cleaning that up and making sure there weren't any conflicts. I said, sure, I would, I would consider it. And, and I was hired, uh, on the Bronco rollovers to defend, uh, a shock absorber company that Ford had alleged, um, tipped the vehicles over. It contributed to the the uh, high center of gravity, which talked, which, you know, people were saying it's because of the high center, mm-hmm. high center mm-hmm. of gravity that these vehicles on a turn are, are lifting their wheels and flipping over. And, um, and I, so I took that on and um, uh, I was uh, fortunate to find some evidence in Ford's, um, they had a library actually uh, for the Ford uh, Bronco cases. Um, of I I want to say it was three hundred thousand documents and films and so forth and oh, wow. um, and I went out to Troy, Michigan, and spent a couple of days uh, rummaging through videos and so forth and so on, and I found some evidence that uh, was very helpful in extricating this shock absorber company from that lawsuit. So um, that saved them a lot of money, but it also told this insurer, this is a guy that he'll do the work for you. So they gave yeah. me some others and, sure. and one thing led to another. And before you knew it, I, I was doing both plaintiffs and defense work. And um, it was a very interesting uh, civil career. Um, one of the cases, as you had mentioned, was this Caproon train fire, a funicular train um, burnt and a large number of people lost their lives. And uh, an American corporation was dragged into the lawsuit, although it, um, and I'm saying this not as an advocate, but as a objective, um, uh, person, they didn't have anything to do with the fire or the cause of the mm-hmm. fire. Um, but, but bringing them into the lawsuit brought jurisdiction into the class actions in the Southern district of New York. Um, uh, the case was ultimately dismissed, but, uh, the fact is, um, 
that gave me some exposure to international law and to um, travel to Austria and um, and to meet with the court there and the experts and so forth. It was it was a very interesting uh, case to say the least. Um, yeah, no, I remember you telling me about it over dinner and um, as well yeah. as so much of your civil uh, civil and criminal litigation background and. I think that's amazing training, not just for uh, being a lawyer, but I think for, for, for being a person, particularly as you transitioned into the trust and estates world, which you did a bit, I see, uh, when you practiced law before becoming a judge. So talk to me about that. Did you do uh, fiduciary litigation in addition to serving as a trustee? Tell me, tell me about that part of your practice before becoming a judge. You know, as I, as I think back, David, I think being a plaintiff's lawyer and, and uh, recovering sizable amounts of money for people who aren't used to dealing with Mm -hmm. large sums of money. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is probably what um, uh, introduced me to the whole concept of a financial fiduciary or a trustee or a conservator or whatever. Yeah. So I would try to, you'd try to measure your client's capacity to deal with a lot of money and you wanted to make sure that it, it didn't uh wasn't a flash in the pan and they were out of money in two years and had spent it all on swimming pools and motorcycles and sure. and, and uh, hot rods or whatever you know um, mm-hmm. um that that shows you how old i am i use the term hot rod um, <laughs> what, what does but, that mean judge riley no, i'm just <laughs> <laughs> Very funny, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I'm funny. No, that, I, but no, that's a great point, though. I mean, so you've seen people burn through money who oh my god, know how to deal yeah. with it. So that's right. maybe you felt a certain compunction to protect them from themselves. I would imagine. Well, the, um, I took my I took my fiduciary duties as a lawyer uh, seriously, and I think uh, having gone through Suffolk, you know that mm-hmm. um, as a law student, it's it's um, it's burnt into your brain that confidentiality and trust and fiduciary responsibility and everything is a hallmark of our legal uh, practices. So um, when I was uh, dealing with these folks and I would say, you know, I can foresee this person running through this money uh, or not or being prey to somebody who tells him, oh, invest in the Brooklyn Bridge or whatever, you know. So you, you, um, you I had uh, concern um, and always tried to make sure that there would be um, a lifetime of money, especially for those people who were uh, very seriously um, uh, injured. Um, and as a result, um, as I got out of uh, uh, the court. I started to do trust work, um, but even when I was in the court, that that empathetic feeling of uh, you know people are in front of you, you want to try to help them and show them mm-hmm. respect, and um, uh, you try to do the right thing. And um, uh, whether it's as a judge or a lawyer or a trustee, um, uh, that's just sort of the way I was brought up, and it's been my mantra since I can ever remember is to sure. do the right thing and treat people with respect. Well, and I've seen you do it firsthand in the, uh, in the engagement we have together. Could you talk to us about your transition from uh, trial attorney, uh, practicing attorney to, to a judge? And the reason why I'm so interested in, in this, and it's because um, I, like you, I was started day's office, as I mentioned, and civil yeah. litigation did, did not have the, as much of a prolific practice as you did, but spent a lot of time in the courtroom. And, and I often wondered, you know, what it would be like and if I ever could um, transition into the, into the world of being a judge. Now, unlike you, nobody asked me, I don't know uh, why, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we could talk about that over. I'll, over, I'll over send the so. governor a letter, David. <laughs> <laughs> Please. I would love to do that sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but no, I'll joke inside. How, how was that transition for you when you were, and here's the way I'll phrase it. You were, you were a player or a gladiator in the arena to suddenly right. becoming kind of like the referee or, or the actual judge, I guess. So was yeah. that a hard transition for you? Um, I don't, I, I, I look back and I, and I think that it was a very exciting time in my life. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I know my, my accountant was saying, you're crazy to give up your job for what you're going to get paid. <laughs> sure. But, sure. Um, but you do things for, 
things other than money, you know, and, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I was very excited about it. And, and I felt quite comfortable because like yourself, I had been in the courtroom and um, I had done civil and criminal defense and plaintiff's work. And mm-hmm. um, uh, so I felt comfortable with the various because we did have to rotate through the civil and criminal sessions um, throughout the counties in the in the Massachusetts county system and um, I I felt comfortable but the transition I there's first of all it's it's very hard not to get a little bit of an ego (laughs) (laughs) um, and I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek you know um, um, I kept reminding myself that, you know, I was appointed, not ordained, you know, um, uh, and, um, and it's hard because at times there's, there's a lot of deference to judges, mm-hmm. you know, you show up in a, I would drive up to a various courthouse and whether it's in Worcester or in, uh, mostly I sat in Suffolk and downtown Boston, but um, and the court offices were very deferential in helping you carry all your your boxes of books and materials and so forth. And can I get you anything and so forth and so on. When you're a lawyer, you go into the courthouse and they say, uh, step to the side, will you, pal? <laughs> so it's, you know, oh, I remember. I remember. Yeah. So, um, so the, yeah, it was a little bit different. And um, uh, it, it was an enormous amount of work, uh, I have to yeah. say. That my I have the utmost respect for members of the judiciary in in uh, Massachusetts, especially because I know what that was like there, um, uh, and the staffing and the uh, resources were always quite limited. So it, that became your obligation as a judge to kind of make up for that difference, and that meant when you're trying cases all day you, at night and weekends, you work on the matters that you have under advisement and, and so forth. We didn't quite have the, the facilities and the resources of uh, law clerks like the federal mm-hmm. courts do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the federal courts budgets are m- much more um, appropriate for the amount of work that they do. In the States, the budget was always tough. And uh, um, so that made the work a little bit um um, more consuming, if I could use that word. Not to say that it uh, that it wasn't good work. I, I, I've often described my judicial time as the pure practice of law, mm. because um, you're you don't really have a specific client. Uh, you don't have overhead or or human relations uh, issues of hiring and firing and paying the rent and the telephones and and um, and worrying about your check, you knew what you were getting paid and, um, mm-hmm. and it would come regularly. Uh, so you could focus on the law and, um, and I was, uh, I loved the law. It was a very consuming, um, it was a very consuming job to the point where I, I had to leave early because I had a heart attack and, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and, and the, I remember the doctor saying to me, well, you, you, probably need to take some time off. And I said, well, I have three months vacation built up. And he said, well, that's probably why you had the heart attack. You should have taken some vacation. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. What's wrong with you? Yeah. You know? Well, I so, remember you told me that wasn't, wasn't the president judge or somebody reprimanding you because you weren't, you were coming in too early and staying yeah. too late or it's, something. Yeah, yeah. 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 One day the chief in Boston <laughs> called me to her office and she said, what's wrong with you? And I said, nothing. Why? What happened? You know, and she said, the janitors have told me you're here at six in the morning and, you know, and and um, you're making your colleagues look horrible. I mean, (laughs) and I said, well, I I uh, always I've always been an early riser and I I get a lot of work done before nine o'clock when court starts. And um she said, well, that's, that's great, but I think you should take some time off. And she, in fact, she knew I used to go to Ireland a lot. And she said, um, go to Ireland and rent a cottage for a month and come back anything but an A-type, you know. And, <laughs> um, and I said, chief, I, I said, on this salary, you could never afford a month in 
in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And, and A-type is not something that's easy to change, I think. Anyway. No, no, you can't <laughs> shed your spots. I've no, learned no. that. Uh, I've learned <laughs> that, uh, you know, as I as I left the bench and I've addressed my health and I'm doing quite well. I feel really good these days. And, um, uh, but I was, I, I was, um, working way too much and, uh, sure. not, not paying attention to my health as much as I should have. Well, no, I think we've all been there, you know, especially yeah. I think when you enjoy what you do. I mean, I, there are certainly points in my career where I became consumed and, didn't think about the going to the gym or what I was eating just because I really was happy with what I was doing. That's right. That's right. So, so, so if we could judge, I'd, I'd love to, to move us to, I guess, retirement from the bench um, was where it kind of looks like you really focused on trustee services, not just for right. families, but also in the corporates uh, and professional world. So talk to us about that, because I think there, there's, there's where you've picked up, obviously, some tremendous fiduciary training and background and expertise yeah. as as a trustee rather than a lawyer or a judge. So talk to right. me about that. Well, I, I, uh, I served on the State Street Global Advisors Board, um, and in Ireland, um, uh, State Street had uh, purchased um, uh, you know, David, in the in the financial world, sometimes you'll buy a a product line or a, or an entity that has different types of uh, mutual fund products or ETFs or whatever, and uh, and then build use that to build your own or to complement your own. And mm-hmm. um, and when you buy those products that are already been up and running, you're also obtaining their performance history. So if you were to start a new fund, you wouldn't have any history of performance. So mm-hmm. there's, in order to build that three to five year benchmarks that a lot of institutional investors or large investors look for. Um, so that's why there's these mergers and acquisitions in the uh, industry at times. And um, so State Street had bought the Rothschild funds and then um, – the Bank of Ireland's asset management group. And um, so I was asked to um, uh, join that board over there and I chaired their uh, spider ETFs for distribution throughout the world, except for the U S in the U S it has a separate board, uh, which is uh, chaired uh, by a woman from California. And, um, uh, and I chaired the, Instead, in the United States, I chaired the institutional trusts and the Elfin funds that uh, uh, were that used to be the GE funds that State Street bought when it bought GE Asset Management. So in the U.S., I chaired a, a, a umbrella of uh, about 67 products um, with different uh, t- types of uh, different types of funds, and mm-hmm. uh, in the in the Irish um, and Eurozone, I chaired the spiders, which is a little over a hundred spiders um, uh, ETFs um, from different sectors, and also sat on the liquidity uh, cash products, um, which uh, were a large institutional client base um, trying to gain some traction and, and growth on their cash as it sat. Uh, before it was put into operation, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, in total, probably, uh, uh, you know, more than half a trillion dollars worth of um, wow. products in the U.S. and and in um, in the eurozone. Mm-hmm. Um, State Street, mm-hmm. as you well know, has um, about four trillion dollars of assets under management. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so this was a smaller portion of it a lot of a lot of their assets under management are private label mm-hmm. um, products mm-hmm. that aren't, aren't necessarily registered products uh, but I sat chairing all of the registered products um, uh, boards for compliance and oversight wow that's tremendous well that's tremendous experience and I I have to ask because uh, I, I can't help myself if you have an opinion or your thoughts on what has been, I guess, uh, referred to as a, as a banking crisis or potentially a burgeoning banking crisis. I don't believe it's a burgeoning banking crisis, but certainly there's some international and domestic implications to the failure of the bank in Silicon mm-hmm. Valley and 
course, what's happening in Switzerland. So you know, given your tremendous experience in the financial services industry, do you have a, some thoughts and opinions on what you're seeing? And are you concerned? Um, it, well, you're always concerned when you see banks uh, having a liquidity crisis. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, without naming the particular bank, the, the major one that's been in the news was uh, was not a SIFI, you know, it, um, it wasn't one of the banks that was designated as too big to fail as, as the, right. that's the vernacular. Uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, and perhaps, um, perhaps this uh, crisis or, or uh, the circumstances that we're witnessing now will lead itself to um, the regulators uh, reaching down below the large banks that they felt were the threat to the economy and, and formulating some liquidity rules for, uh, for the smaller, uh, regional banks as well. Um, I, as far as philosophically, um, I, I read, uh, where they had, um, about three to one dollars on deposit that weren't FDIC insured. Oh, wow. um, okay. uh, so it meant 25% of their deposits were insured under the FDIC, but 75% of it was out there without any insurance um, or protection. Um, yeah. And uh, and they, um, they didn't have the liquidity should they have a run on the bank to, to pay those people back. They had... They had um, put their cash into longer term instruments. Um, and it, it's not like, uh, it's not like the 0809 crisis where, where there was, um, where there was uh, illiquidity in the, in the um, instruments, if you will, mm-hmm. there was no market for the instruments that the money had been invested in right. so that everything was being revalued and given haircuts. Mm-hmm. Um, and with redemptions, the institutions in the financial industry were required to sell things at a loss uh, um, rather than at hundred percent of value. Mm-hmm. And that's what, uh, was the problem back then. This was an illiquidity for redemptions um, because of uh, uh, poor strategies in how they were managing and holding on to the custody of the cash that they had on deposit. Right. Um, uh, it, it, it's an, I don't think that this is going to be um, a long-term problem. I think that it will be addressed. I'm, I'm not worried that it's going to tip uh, yeah. the scales of our economy in, a, in, a, in any material way. Um, it doesn't help when you have a, a, a so-called bank crisis at the same time as the Fed raising rates at, <laughs> right. at, his, at historic levels. Yeah. Um, and, and, and pace, and pace too. And, and that we have a lot of geopolitical influences uh, around the world that are, are uh, interfering with the flow of the, mosh, of the market. So, um, you know, when you have all of those things coming together, it creates somewhat of a perfect storm. Uh, a lot of uh, aggressive investors would feel that it presents opportunities. Um, mm-hmm. But one has to be very cautious and exercise due diligence in where you put your money because, um, uh, as I said, these uh, these geopolitical influences and what's going on in the in the world today is is kind of unsettling to a lot of people who don't like to see change. Sure. And, and that is, isn't that traditional in the financial market? Sure. No. Uh, they don't like surprises. They change like to, is not good. I agree. That's right. That's right. Well, no, and I agree with you. I mean, I certainly don't have your level of expertise in the space, but, you know, as we're, our Bridgeford is, of course, organized as a non-depository bank trust, right. a trust company, but it's not depository. So we certainly interact with custodians all over the world and, 
this past couple of weeks, I've been traveling pretty extensively, meeting with our partners that use Bridgeford as an outsourced trust solution, like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and some other large names. And this idea of contagion, which is a, a word that's pretty popular right now, and which of course means is this going to spread to um, other, well, is it going to spread to large banks? Is it going to continue to spread among regional banks? And across the board, you know, some really, really uh, sophisticated people don't believe this contagion thing is going to be an issue and that it's just sort of going to spin itself out in a, in a small, small way and then we'll move on. And I hope that's true for the sake of you know, <laughs> world economy. I hope that's true. And right. um, it's, it's hard not to pay attention to it and, I'm, and it's hard not to stay on top of it. If you look at the numbers that you're dealing with with these banks um, uh, in in the global perspective of how many banks and how much cash is out there in the market, it, it's really not it's not a material amount that it would tip the scales of the market. But sure. the con- it's the contagion, as you say, it's a very good very good term, it, and and fear and. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, fear causes people to act irrationally, and um, and uh, it's it's not time to uh, act irrationally. I mean, if you had a lot of money in one of those banks, it was probably a smart thing to take it out before you, yeah, be, yeah. before the president said he was going to guarantee all the deposits. But um, yeah. uh, n- not not mentioning that, I'm just saying that uh, it's it's time to really step back and look and say, okay, how can we how can we address this without over-regulating? Absolutely. Um, it's always uh, the balance. It's always the right. balance. Well, I would love to transition to sort of current day and what you're focusing on and really what brought us together. I began our conversation by, I think, an observation of um, you know, your, your history and, and training and, and experiences sort of evolving or culminating into, I think, sort of this, this perfect temperament to be a trustee, particularly for large families and and an independent trustee collaborating with <clears throat> trust companies like Bridgeford or serving as a trust protector. And I'd love for you to talk to me about your experiences there. I know that's a, a focus for you now in your career. Um, I think you're very good at it. I think our listeners should know that you're very good at it and, and certainly available to to serve in that role. So first, Judge Riley, why don't you define what I'm talking about, what, what it is that you're doing for families and then what is it that you want to do? And let's talk about some of your experiences. Okay. Uh, well, typically, um, uh, families, uh, and I'll, I'll start with the high net worth uh, families. Um, oftentimes, uh, a, a great grandparent, a grandparent, or a parent will will uh, create wealth for themselves and for their family, and. And then they're faced with the question of how do I preserve this wealth? How do I how do I distribute it to the benefit of my loved ones uh, without the risk of them mismanaging it and and uh, losing it and uh, not having the benefit of all of the years of work that I have uh, put in to create this wealth. So. As most of the folks that have ever listened to this will know, I mean, the vehicle of a trust is um, is meant to uh, protect uh, the principal and the assets um, and to distribute, um, uh, depending on the settlor, the person who sets up the trust, um, what their intent and what their goals are with regard to the distribution of that wealth. And, and that varies with every factual family circumstance, you know. Um, uh, but typically, we want to make sure that our holdings are given out to our children and our grandchildren and perhaps their children um, in a manner that um, I can have an impact if I'm the settlor on the lives and make a positive impact and help my my uh, children and my grandchildren and so forth um, experience life um, uh, through the fruits of my labor and um, and not necessarily completely through the fruits of my labor but to assist them when needed so there's also there's so many just as just as there are differences in family needs and structures there's just as many different uh, approaches to the uh, processing of trust. 
Sure. So I came into the trust world when I first started with State Street. I, I was, in fact, a trustee of a of a Massachusetts business trust mm-hmm. and realizing the fiduciary duties there and and that the shareholders that were relying on me to to perform my oversight and governance of the uh, financial products that they that their hard earned savings and retirement funds were in, um, I then branched out a bit to uh, private trusts. And, um, and it's, it's very much uh, the same approach, only with more hands-on to the, to the parties, the recipients or the mm-hmm. participants of that family plan. When you're in the commercial world um, uh, with registered products on the SEC and so forth, you never really meet the shareholders. You don't. You, you don't really uh, mm-hmm. get to um, to know them or what you know what's troubling them and what they want their money to do. Um, mm-hmm. You're more focused on uh, compliance with the rules and regulations and making sure that there's good performance and reasonable fees being charged to them and so forth. So you're their watchdog in that commercial setting. But when you get to the family trust. Um, you're really, um, I don't want to say a surrogate parent because you're, uh, at times you feel like one, but, um, uh, it, there, um, you are, you're reading an instrument that was written up before you became the trustee, obviously. Um, and that gives you your mandate that tells you, um, the settler or settlers, if it was more than one wanted to provide for the beneficiary in this manner with these restrictions and so forth. So it's that oversight of that, in addition to the management of the trust assets and the investment of them and the performances that you're receiving, um, it, it, uh, it adds a dimension, if you will, because now you have now you have personal contact and you're dealing with specific human beings and their needs and differences. Um, so um, it, it's actually, it's a very enjoyable job. Um, uh, there's a, a lot of self-satisfaction when you see uh, the benefit of um, uh, some of the distributions you made uh, having in a positive impact on the lives of a beneficiary and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes, it, um, these jobs can come with a certain amount of frustration that, um, that the beneficiaries aren't really living up to the expectations that the settlor might've had. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, uh, and you have to deal with that as well. Um, it's challenging at times, but, um, uh, but as long as you, uh, do what, is expected of you as a fiduciary, and that is uh, live up to the terms of the trust that you're managing, and um, and also you have to have that that whole approach to that people power, if you will. You know, making sure mm-hmm. making sure that you treat them with respect, and make sure they understand if there are limitations in the trust on what they can do and what they can't do, and um, and you just make sure that you are able to go to sleep at night, knowing that you've done what was expected of you. Um, and if you do that, then it's a rewarding, it's a rewarding career. It really is. M- much like you uh, handled yourself as a judge. It sounds like, well, I, as I've indicated it, you know, I've been, I've had the pleasure of seeing you do it firsthand. And, you know, I, for our listeners who have, who have followed Richford and, and uh, listened to our podcast, we, we talk a lot about modern trust law and, Part of the beauty of modern trust law is is using people like Judge Riley in various fiduciary roles. So, you know, when when in need of a of a fiduciary position, not not just as co trustee, um, and it's under South Dakota law, our listeners know there's actually something called a special trustee that um, that has even more power than the corporate trustee, uh, and, and something that a lot of families like to deal with directly with an individual <clears throat> like. Uh, Judge Riley, rather than directly with the corporate trustee, which is certainly just fine with Bridgeford. But it isn't just the co-trustee role, and I want to make that clear to our, our listeners. Um, somebody with Judge Riley's temperament and experience would, would serve very well in the role of a trust protector, 
Uh, again, South Dakota has probably one of the most expansive trust protector provisions, but so do other top tier trust jurisdictions. And Judge Riley certainly is not um, uh, jurisdictional specific. I mean, these roles are fiduciary defined. The, the rule of fiduciary is defined the same way in all of these top tier trust jurisdictions, but there are needs. And Judge Riley, I can tell you directly, particularly in the international space where you know, families just don't have an individual they can rely on or they don't want a family member to do this. They want pure independence. Mm-hmm. And then if they want the right jurisdiction, um, and, and we would argue, of course, in South Dakota, then they need a corporate trustee to get them there. And so I, you know, the roles you can fill, again, aren't just co-trustee. It's it's trust protector and also a distribution advisor, which is, of course, a fiduciary role under the directed trust model, which is another one of these modern trust law um, concepts. And so, you know, I'm hearing you say you enjoy this work, which is great. I, I've said a few times now you're, you're very good at it. And it's it's work that you you seek. Um, share with me as we uh, as we as we sort of wind down our, our conversation. You know, wh- one of your most entertaining or illuminating experiences that you've dealt with as a as a trustee, uh, and that maybe has a moral uh, or a, or a lesson in it for uh, for for the management of trust. I know I'm sort of putting you on the spot, but mm-hmm. I, I'd love to share a, a, well, a, an anecdote okay. without names or sure. protecting protecting the innocent. <laughs> sure. Course. No, I understand. Well, um, well. First of all, thank you for your kind words and compliments, David. Uh, and 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 I I especially appreciate them coming from you because you do have so many uh, interactions with trustees and lawyers and so forth. So I um, I'm humbled uh, by your your comments, and I appreciate it very much that uh, you've said those kind words. And you've touched on South Dakota, and and that's how we met because. Um, I I was the trustee of a of a large uh, complex of trusts, and um, I was seeking uh, a, a location for those trusts that was um, that was friendly in the sense of confidentiality um, and taxation and um, and the opportunities to administer and manage the trust without. Um, I want to say over-regulation, and, I, mm-hmm. and that's hard to define, but over-regulation or interference with um, with accomplishing the goals that the yeah. trust was set up for. Mm-hmm. And uh, in some states and some uh, legislatures have created laws that do, in fact, overstep the legislative or legal process and, and interfere with... Um, uh, a settler's uh, accomplishing the goals that they set mm-hmm. out to do, and Completely South Dakota agree. and South Dakota does not do that. And um, so, I did a significant amount of due diligence and um, and searched around. I spoke with a number of, of different um, firms that had uh, trust businesses and exposure and tr- and um, experience in South Dakota specifically. And your company. Uh, was the c- company that uh, came out with the highest recommendations, and that's why I contacted you. Um, so, uh, so you share a very uh, a very high level of um, uh, great reputation in South Dakota. So, um, well, and and elsewhere because the folks that I was dealing with were in the New York metropolitan area, not not South Dakota. So, um, they they had done their due diligence as well, and thought so highly of you and your company. That's why I reached out and, and we hit it off. Um, and I don't think it's because of our roots at Suffolk law school. Um, <laughs> when I went to Suffolk law, we were reading by candles, you know, so, uh, um, I'm joking of course, but anyway, uh, to, uh, as far as an anecdote, I, I think I put a, probably put it more general. Um, I have had beneficiaries, um, uh, some of them have been elder uh, folks, uh, professionals, doctors, um, and lawyers. Um, and as they age, they, they've lost uh, some of their faculties or capacities to deal with uh, complex matters, including financial and what have you. And I've also dealt with young beneficiaries who not having had the life experience that the older ones do feel that uh, in 
I'm, I'm generalizing, but they feel that, uh, well, this trust is my money, so I should be able to do with what I want. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you have to go back to Trust 101 and sit down with them and say, okay, see what this says and see what the consequences of you not um, having a trust would be, uh, because often that would mean a significant portion of it being lost to taxation or to other things. And mm -hmm. uh, so um, every circumstance is different. Um, I, I haven't had any, um, I, I want to say, <laughs> I'm straining my brain to think of a, of a humorous situation I've had as a trustee and I, I really can't come up with one. <laughs> <laughs> because it's serious business, Judge. That's right. fine. There's, exactly. there's nothing funny about what we do. That's exactly. And I, and I on the, on that. the other hand, there were lots of funny times on the bench. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah, I, uh, if I still practice, we would have had some fun if I were in front of you, I'm sure. But, yeah, yeah. Well, well, I have to tell you, Judge, it's been a, an absolute pleasure working with you and getting to know you as a, as a professional and also as a friend. And you know, I encourage our listeners to to read the, over your bio, which will be attached to um, to this and our, our podcast section of our website. And 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 you know, as our as you're looking for, um, as I'm speaking to our listeners now, a, 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 an extremely talented trustee fiduciary to uh, to serve in the various roles highly encourage you to reach out to judge riley and see if it's a, if it's a fit um I, I said multiple times it's been a pleasure working with him he's he does take the, the judicial temperament and takes what he does very very seriously because uh, it is serious work and um judge i can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us well thank you david and uh thank you for the very kind words i appreciate them you bet. And um, with that, uh, Judge, we'll let you uh, get back to Ireland. And, uh, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Okay, great. Thanks again. Bye now. Sure. Thank Thanks again for listening to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to keep posted on when new episodes are added. And for more information, you can visit us online at bridgefordtrust.com.